You're listening to a podcast from the University of Manchester. This episode was recorded during lockdown. Please forgive any issues with sound quality. Welcome to this episode of The Buzz. In this episode, we're talking to a couple of PhD students from the Have You Heard team. They're a podcast group that look at how science is portrayed in the media and delves into some techniques that we can use to see how trustworthy science is being presented. To begin with, though, Joe and I are going to be playing two truths and one lie with some scientific facts. So, Joe, do you want to go first? Yeah, I can go first. So, see if you can guess which one's the lie. In 50 years, humans have decimated two-thirds of the world's wildlife. Okay, next one. Dogs can sense heat with their noses. Hmm. And third one, worms once had lots of tiny, tiny feet. Um, I hope the first one's not... Well, I say I hope it's not true. I think it could be worse than that. So I'm hoping it's not true. It's way less, but Hmm. maybe it's not. Uh, dogs and heat through their nose. Um, hmm. I mean, that could be true. They don't sweat, do they? That's what I'm always panting. So maybe, like, I don't know if that's got to do with their nose. What was the final one? Uh, worms once had lots of tiny, tiny feet. Uh, uh, worms and feet, worms and feet. Mm, I think that might be a lie. I know snakes had they're not worms snakes aren't worms they're totally different mm. but maybe you read that snakes had feet and were like oh i can trick Corey by saying worms instead <laughs> um hmm. i'd never presume i could trick you Corey. oh well of course <laughs> i'm gonna go with the the worm fact as being uh not true as the lie yeah you are correct that is That's a lie good. i completely made that up and yeah, it sounds it sounds a bit ridiculous. No, it sounded like I said, snakes used to have. So you see the bones still in the skeletons for the, the legs they had. Yeah, that's what I thought. It, it could maybe be plausible. Um, unfortunately, uh, the first one is true. So since 1970, um, I'll check my notes here. The population sizes of 4,392 mammals, amphibians, birds, fish and reptile species declined by 68 percent that's so bad um, i know it's, it's it's terrible and that's according to a world wildlife fund report from 2020 and the the dogs one uh, also in 2020 um, researchers at lund university and yotvos lorand university uh they found that dogs are able to sense weak thermal radiation with their noses um only a few animals can do this so uh, some snakes and the vampire bat but it, it's important because it could be a lifesaver because uh, newborn puppies struggle to open their eyes. So being able to smell heat can, you know, help them avoid danger. Ah. That kind of thing. That's cool. Well, ended on a more positive fact. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a nice fact. Yeah. It's okay. a shame about the worms one because I was picturing them with lots of tiny little legs. But uh, <laughs> Sure. But you I made it say, up. <laughs> yeah. 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 I did make it up. Uh-huh. But yeah, got, you got um, it right. Yeah, well, I'm I'm pretty good at these games now. I know, I can I can see. Uh, I've got three statements, one of which is a lie. Okay, first up, all the matter that makes up the entire human race could fit into the space of a sugar cube. Right. Uh, another fact: um, leeches have chemical memory, which means. Uh, you could feed a leech to another leech and they would have some memory of the previous leech's like life. Oh, wow. Uh, and the final one is, if you're in a low-light situation, your vision becomes worse when you look directly at an object as opposed to kind of looking at it at an angle or kind of in your periphery vision. Um, that is tricky. The, the, one that, the one that sounded a bit, a bit too mad was the leech one i think uh, okay. so so why it can it can take on another leech's memory by eating it so so uh i will give you some background to it um, <laughs> so um 
some experiments in the 50s and 60s. Some scientists were trying to discover if uh, memory exists, how memory kind of exists in the brain. And so one of the hypotheses were that it was like chemical. So you would, you would store chemicals in your brain and that was your memories. And mm -hmm. so they did an experiment where they had um, Leach do a uh, kind of uh, go through a maze. And uh, so they had some blood at the center of the maze and they, uh, the leeches worked out where the blood was in the maze. And then what we did is they liquefied that leech, fed it to a different leech, and then they gave the, that new leech the same maze. And because it had the memory from the previous leech that they had just eaten, they could do the maze really quickly because they knew where to go. Right. Wow. See, now, now this sounds like you're not making it up because <laughs> it's, it's too detailed. And the other one was the ice cube. See, that's, 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 well, that's, that's incredible. If it's, it's a sugar cube. Sugar cube. Sugar cube. Yeah. That's incredible if it's true. And what was the last one again? Uh, that was the, uh, when it's dark or low light, you should be looking kind of aside to the object, not directly at it. Okay. Oh, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stick to my original guns and I'm going to say the leech one, but only because I'm thinking you're trying to trick me. Maybe they, maybe they tried to see if it would remember and it, and it didn't actually remember. So I'm going to go with leech. Okay, you are correct on both fronts. Am I? <laughs> yeah. So yes. the experiment did take place, and to be fair, the scientists declared that they had memory, so that you could liquefy the leech and feed it to them. Uh, so it was quite a big thing. But then numerous experiments since have, have kind of not found the chemical memory thing to be to be real, really. Um, mm. So they thought at the time, well, if this is true, then maybe we can apply it to humans. We'll be able to take memories from people's brains, their chemicals, and give them to someone else. But yeah, yeah. Um, it, it didn't happen. So it's a bit made up. Yeah, I think that's why, because I thought people would try and, uh, you know, use that on humans as well. And I've not heard anything like that. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> it sounds like something off Harry Potter. Yeah. Uh, so the, the sugar cube one, that is true. So most of atoms, like 99.9% .9 of atoms are just sp like dead space. So mm. we're from the nucleus to the electron. There's a massive gap. I think it's something stupid. Like if you had a football in the center of a football stadium, then the the nucleus was on the center field spot, and the and the and the electrons would be outside the stadium. Like the right. gap between them is, is is that large. Don't know if that's exactly true. By the way, that that analogy. So maybe that's more fake, <laughs> but like that scale anyway. Mm. Uh, and the uh, the low light one, yeah. So. Um, how we see in the dark is through uh, rods in our eyes. Um, they're, they're the ones which uh, detect uh, color. Uh, uh, not color, sorry, uh, light intensity. So the cones are for color, rods are for light intensity. And all the uh, the rods in our eye, they are on the edges of the retina. So they're not directly mm -hmm. at the base of the, the eye. And so if you're looking directly at something, you've not got a lot of rods there. In mm -hmm. fact, you've got so you've got more rods at the kind of, on the periphery vision. And so um, if it's really low light, you need that light intensity into your retina, then it's better to kind of look to the side of it because that's where you've got more rods. So you should be able to see it better. Right. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Good facts. Yeah. So Joe, we were playing that game because we were looking at how fake news could be spread. One of the ways in which fake news is potentially spread is through science in the media. And in this episode, we spoke to the Have You Heard guys all about this. Um, so we are joined today by Luke and Katie, who are from the Have You Heard podcast team. Um, do you want to give a little bit of background to who have you heard? That's hard to say. <laughs> give me some background to who have you heard are and what kind of your goal is. Yeah, certainly. Uh, Katie, do you want to or shall I? Uh, you go for it, Luke. I tend to talk more, more than you. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Have You Heard is a... It's an organization set up uh, originally at the University of Manchester by a group of uh, PhD students. Um, we're now spread in all sorts of different places, uh, mostly in Edinburgh, Glasgow, and Manchester. And the the guiding principle is dealing with science in the news. So major headlines that come out about uh, scientific discoveries and kind of uh, informing the public about how you can sift through what might be sensationalized headlines or things that don't quite ma match the science that's going on um, and how to deal with that. In particular, we try to target groups who are, aren't typically targeted for 
kind of science communication stuff. So we've we've done things in in local community groups, um, mostly. Uh, so uh, people like uh, working men's clubs, uh, retirement homes, things like that. And also with Have You Heard, Luke and I teamed up and set up the Have You Heard UK podcast, where we talk to um, experts in their field and discuss um, particular headlines that have come through within that field. And we work through those headlines and the articles together to figure out what's true science and what may be sensationalised and just sort of have some fun along the way. That's great. I guess before we go into the how to read the science in, in the media, then um, I guess why is this important? Why should we be even concerned about this? It's such a good question. Um, so science informs so many um, aspects of our lives. It affects what you eat, um, what kind of air you're breathing, what kind of medicines you have, how you live. Um, it's it's honestly everywhere, and your understanding of science is therefore really important to be able to make um, rational and informed decisions um, without being scaremongered or um, pushed into doing something that sounds like the right idea based on how someone presents it, but actually it could be detrimental to your health or your surroundings or your well-being. So science is just an integral part of life and in order for a progressive society, there's constant progressions in science, and that's really important. But I would argue that the other side of the coin is being able to communicate that science effectively, because there's no point doing amazing research if nobody knows about it, um, because the whole point of uh, doing science for the most part is to help people and to make the world a better place and you can't do that through research alone you also have to be able to communicate that research. Do you think it's fair to say that science and the way kind of science is is it almost more important for uh, science stories to be accurate to have that focus on accuracy more than other types given that if you know depending on figures or whatnot they need to be correct because an inaccurate figure makes a big difference whether they're, they're right or wrong yes completely um and i not necessarily because of the the straight output of a figure that may be uh, informing someone in a different way than the the truth would have done that's one um argument within itself but the other more important aspect is then if you get a climate where science is being portrayed inaccurately. You lose the trust of the public and then um, the sort of the credibility of science also becomes diminished. And then you enter a, uh, a society where informed decisions are difficult to come by. I think just adding to that is, yeah, talking about kind of credibility is at the end of the day the vast majority of science is funded by the public so the the money for a lot of the research comes from uh kind of tax funded uh and charity organizations and it's important for everyone to if they want to be able to understand what scientists are doing with those with those resources science isn't just its own kind of section of society getting on with things um and discoveries and things it's something for everyone to to share in and find out what they're doing and, and what's going on great and i know you meant you touched on funding there um should we in general be kind of concerned about who's funding the study um could there be any examples of bias being played out at all yeah that's a really good point um so all scientists you know need to earn money to live work and eat <laughs> Uh, just like everybody else and um, therefore you need to be aware of who funded a particular study. So any um, academic publication will have a funding disclaimer and it will say this was funded by the British Council of um, Research or uh, a particular partially funded by a certain industry or, or what, whatever it may be. And that's something that should be communicated through to the public, particularly if it's a controversial study. 
So I think one of our previous episodes had a really good uh, example of this. Do you remember Luke to do with um, eggs for breakfast? So there was a, an article that said uh, something, something along the lines of uh, eating a full English breakfast with um, eggs every morning is good for you. Uh, for various reasons, and then little disclaimer at the bottom, funded by Lion Egg Company. Um, and wow. you just go, okay, it makes you a little bit more sceptical. Yeah, it's it's important to declare anything like that where research is funded by a, a particular company. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything wrong with that study. Most, A lot of, obviously, that kind of study would only really be of interest to people who uh, produce eggs and things like that. Um, but it's important, you've got to be reasonably sure that, for example, the article would have been published regardless of what the outcome was. It's an important one. So a lot of the time it'll be a group of scientists get funding for a project and then they get to go do that project and it doesn't. they don't have to report back with what their findings were. It touches on the importance of publishing negative results as well which is something that is becoming more of a thing in science nowadays um, one of the problems with the pharmaceutical industry is that there is only largely publication of positive results and it means that competitive companies and competitive research labs may be working on the same thing that someone has already disproved but because it wasn't a positive result it doesn't get published yeah, and kind of on the on the back of what you were saying before, the if if it's a controversial result, so if you've got a lot of a large body of research that says one thing, and then a study that's funded by a particular company goes the other way, then it's something where you should be very skeptical of, you know, ignoring the consensus just because that one company happens to have found some evidence about it not being the case. It's, it's also important that it's stated who, who it is funded by um, to keep some reliability and honesty from that company. It, it sort of forces uh, them to be accountable for their, for their work. Uh, yeah, I guess historically, like companies, uh, tobacco companies, right, had, had sponsored studies into um, the link between tobacco and cancer, and often those studies um, would find in favor of the, the tobacco companies and, and minimize the risk of tobacco smoke. And so I guess um, there, there's a real world consequence, right, of not disclosing funding um, properly. And so um, it had a, a knock on effect of actually tobacco not being linked to cancer for a very long time because of that. I was gonna say quickly off the, the back of that, the, the issue with the, the tobacco situation, if I, remember correctly, is that even once a link had been very well established, tobacco companies would effectively fund a lot of further research because a common phrase that, that crops up a lot um, when scientists are looking into something is you'll manage to show uh, a link in a very particular set of circumstances and you would commonly say, oh, you know, this is encouraging evidence of this pattern we've noticed, we want to do further research. And what tobacco companies did is effectively used that as as a as a form of propaganda. So being able to say the headline, scientists want to look further into the link between smoking and lung cancer, for example, that sounds like it hasn't already been decided. And it's the same thing where it's you need to give the the context of the field in general as well as not just one particular article, because mm. uh, you can use that to your advantage. Because also you can make a, a particular piece of science sound amazing, um, like it's this brand new idea, but it's actually been established in the field for a long time. And it's just a, another piece of evidence going on to that. And it, that mm. sort of adds to the problem of science communication sometimes in the, the idea that these things happen instantaneously um, rather than being a combination of years and years of work. I think also at there's plenty of historical examples of where, depending on where the political power and funding is, you can vastly influence the research that is being uh, being done and also the outcome of those research. So, for example, Nazi Germany is a 
a classic example of um, science being taken um, and really heavily biased based on a political agenda. Mm. As well as the the actual funding, uh, should we consider the the journal that the research is being uh, published in for validity and accuracy? So we we personally would advocate for every sort of headline that's discussing an article to link to the academic article. And we always think it's a bit sus when they don't, because it's a bit like, what are you trying to hide? But in terms of the prestige of a journal, there's swings and roundabouts um, with that. So some journals that are classed as very um, prestigious, for example, Nature, uh, sometimes they are those um there's a statistic like something like 50% of the research published in nature has not been able to be repeated um and it's because of this um prestige that they'll only publish the best and greatest um and so the the newest stuff um which a lot of the time actually ends up being really difficult to replicate so that there is a, a conversation to be had about how much you take into account the prestige of a of a a journal and also whether or not it's open source. Um, so it's historically um, difficult to get into the more prestigious um, journals, which tend to be closed source and a lot easier to be accepted into an open source journal. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it has a less rigorous review process. Um, so it's that's basically a very complicated question <laughs> and you expect a lot from the lay reader. Um, so we would just advise that if yeah. it says where the journal's from and especially if it links to it, if you are interested, go just go and have a read. And if it links to it, it's probably more likely to be trusted. Yeah, I, I, I like you say, I, th- I think it's really difficult for anyone just reading a newspaper article to decide whether or not a particular journal means much. I would generally err on the side of, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Certainly like, like Katie says, it's a nice sign if they link to it, if you can, you can find the actual scientific article they're talking about. That's really nice. Uh, But yes, even, even scientists, there's a lot of debate about what, what makes a good journal and what doesn't. Um, But I think you, you should be careful about, very small niche journals sometimes like you could if you look into it and it's you know by the university of things my mum told me when i was little (laughs) it's like you get that kind of thing um and i think something that'll come up repeatedly with our with our answering uh questions today will be that the main thing to look for for that kind of thing is does is there someone else that agrees that has nothing to do with the original study is there someone who's kind of qualified to to comment on it, commenting on it, and saying, "Yeah, this sounds about right." Uh, yeah, that's, and, it, and that's something more important than the journal. Experienced researcher in the same field who is independent to that original study, having a quote from someone like that um, adds much more weight to the validity of that science than uh, just simply stating which uh, uh, which journal it was published in. Yeah, again, it can't be my mum. <laughs> sure. Um, so in, that's one of your toolkit things, right, is who else is talking about this research and are they agreeing with it? Uh, I know another one yes. is um, where, in what, I guess, was what is the research being done on? So is it being done on a, a, a cell petri dish? Is it being done on an animal? Is it being done on a human? I guess, can you talk about that and kind of the importance of kind of having those stages of researching and ascribing importance to uh, different levels of importance to um, the medium in which they're being researched on? Of course. So both Luke and I, our background is biology. Um, so that's why we we mentioned things like the cell, a petri dish and a human. And that's because if you want to, for example, take the um, the case study of trying to get a drug into a human, that there is basically a 20-year research pipeline in which you start with a hypothesis about creating a certain uh, drug molecule protein and then you've got to produce that synthetically 
um, put it into a cell, see whether it dies or not, um, see whether it has the, the appropriate response that you want to see at that small level, um, bring it up into higher studies and then again into animal studies and then finally um, into humans and then into sort of population wide data for, for broader things. And each individual step of that process is really important. And every time that there is a um, a therapeutic for, for example, cancer, if it passes through any of these stages, that's really great and really interesting news. But for example, if it's in the earlier stage and it shows that a certain drug is blo blocking a certain cancer pathway, for example, a headline may say, uh, cure for cancer coming soon. Um, and then people will think, oh, you know, uh, five years time. And in reality, it's not even been in uh, animals yet. It, it may cause, you know, immediate kidney failure. And it leads to this um, society where more and more now you see, you see headlines that say, you know, cure for cancer in five to 10 years, um, potential new cancer cure, cure for the common cold comes up every um every mm. winter time and you think i'm sure yeah, didn't we cure the common cold like <laughs> 20 years ago according to the daily mail um and it's because the those original headlines sensationalize it from those first points of study and they've still got further to go and points where it may fail so it's it's good to sort of ground yourself when you see a sensationalized headline to be like okay where in this pipeline is this and we, we use the example of cell, petri dish, animals and humans because of our biological background. Um, but the same is the, is the case for all science. It can be, has it done, been done on a, um, a computer model versus have we got experimental data? Has this been reproduced? Is this the first time we've seen it? Um, and all of that information should be there in a well-communicated art article because it's important in understanding the fundamental point of what you're trying to get across. We've obviously mentioned headlines quite a lot so far. They're obviously very important for attracting people to read the news itself. Are there any kind of indicators or kind of warning signs we can look out for that might suggest that we should maybe question the the accuracy of the of the actual piece? If it sounds too good to be true, <laughs> it is. Yeah, <laughs> that is a very good first step. Um, so yeah, there's there's uh, there's a lot around headlines and why it's difficult to because it, it's very, firstly very easy for us to criticize headlines because uh, we don't have to write them uh, and we're we're scientists so we we enjoy you know six pages on one very specific particular experiment that happened and you can't condense that into a single headline um, and so that's part of the issue is that scientists love caveats. We like a, oh, we've shown this in this particular model at this particular time with these particular things. And you don't have chance to, you can't accurately communicate that in a short form. Um, so it is, it's one of these things where you, you end up missing out some of the details. And it's firstly why the important thing is to read more than just the headline. And secondly, why you do need to be a little bit skeptical so with you mentioned our, um, our our kind of steps our infographic for for how to deal with headlines, and there's there's one element that's not on there that I think is quite important, and Katie kind of touched on this, the the too good to be true kind of angle is, I think it's important to think about what emotion the title wants you to feel. I think that's a really important one because if if there's if you if you just take a step back and think oh this this headline makes it sound like I should be angry or something like that or if it's tugging at your heartstrings or something like that then that can indicate that perhaps it's tailored to get that response from you and and kind of get your attention more than it is to accurately present the the news. Yeah, humans are excellent communicators and a lot of that comes down to um having really great emotional perception and being able to grasp onto the emotion behind a point and using that to drive um, a point forward. And that that's something that it's worthwhile being aware of. 
But in terms of like quick and easy things to remember with a headline, if it says things like potentially may uh, in 10 years time, anything like that probably means it's not been done in humans yet. And it is in that earlier stage. And um, always be careful with words like cancer and Alzheimer's and dementia because they tend to not all those three but for example Alzheimer's and dementia tend to get used interchangeably but they are fundamentally separate and there are lots of different types of cancer and stages and causes that it's not a one-size-fits-all um so if you are uh, seeing a, a headline that's saying you know cure for cancer in 10 years what's more likely to be behind that headline is talking about one specific cancer that has been shown to be, uh, to work positively against a certain drug or whatever. Um, yeah. the, the broad language tends to hide very, very specific things because research does very, very specific things. Yes. And it's it's often with those kind of things, again, they're quite emotive topics, things like cancer is is very emotive and it's you want you want to feel like you're, you know, that we're fighting back against these horrible diseases. And I think the thing to keep in mind is that we are. So if you hear something like, you know, this drug could be a potential cure for cancer, don't, you know, don't join in with that conclusion. But it's we have made a significant step towards, you know treating a particular kind of cancer or something like that. So it's positive news. Um, it's just, yeah, keeping it uh, in the right kind of scale and context. And that that in itself, all of these steps, they are sensational in themselves. They don't need to be sensationalized out of context, um, which is like my real bugbear with this stuff. When there's a really sensationalized headline that, you know, it's going to revolutionize everything um, and then it turns out to just be this small step towards doing that. It diminishes the sensationalized, the, the sensational when work the that thing they've was done. Cool yeah, anyway. exactly. Like it's already cool. Stop adding glitter. Do you think it's getting worse? The sensationalist, you know, social media. Everything. That's my job. Everything. We have to, you know, make sure people click on a link. Uh, that's our job, you know, to to get those clicks. And so do you think that's driving more sensationalist headlines or do you think this is something that's all, all, always existed and so uh, actually there's a more fundamental thing that needs to change? I think that in the last 10 years, people consume information much quicker and um, they are overstimulated and overwhelmed much more now due to social media and the way that we get our news um, than even 10 years ago. And a lot of that pressure for the, those snappy, uh, clickbaity headlines, um, I think, has really come to a head um, in recent years, in probably the last five years, I would say. But I don't think it will just get worse and worse and worse because I think the situation that it's led to now is this sort of fake news. Um, you don't know what to believe. Um, everything's sensationalised and therefore nothing is situation which isn't sustainable. Um, and so I don't think it's going to get bigger and more sensationalised and more clickbaity. I think in reality there are going to be um, maybe more rules put in place or uh, people are going to be off put by sensationalized headlines and therefore not click on them and it will start mm. to be this sort yeah. of reverse psychology effect that's my personal prediction <laughs> as a very optimistic person <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah i so i think i'm similarly optimistic so i, I think first it's important to point out so neither me nor katie uh or anyone from have you heard themselves are journalists so there's obviously a really different angle to hey some of my and... best friends know journalists <laughs> <laughs> um and so yeah we don't have a good idea of what the kind of internal landscape of journalism is at the moment um i generally think that 
that the internet and and kind of this this perception that there's a lot more fake news and things out there at the moment i think is likely to be as a result of people being more aware of it i think that it's pre-internet there was all sorts of misinformation um huge amounts like word of mouth was the biggest source everyone knew facts from again I, I I'm really sorry, mum, but like <laughs> my mum heard stories from people who would pass on this this thing and the other. So it was it, misinformation was rife anyway. The internet just allowed us to all connect together, realize all of this kind of stuff that had been spread about, but also spread it so much quicker. Yes, um, and I, I think because we're affected, we're still in the infancy of the internet. It's not been around that long. And I think there will be an adjustment period. Um, and like Katie says, I imagine it will, people get used to these sensationalized headlines and then the demand for actual rigorous journalism will continue to increase as we go on. Um, and it will kind of balance out a little bit. Yeah. I think also the, the point where you're saying about um, word of mouth and your mum hears something and then tells you, I think that's particularly true because when you're young, anything your parents say, you just take as face value, don't you? And then you, as you grow up, you then suddenly realise that you've learned and internalised something that's just not true. So I, for years, thought that you couldn't put your hand in the uh, pain display machines where the, the change falls out until you've heard <laughs> the change fall out, um, because otherwise it will chop your hand off. And I thought that that was a legitimate thing. <laughs> Um, until I was like 19 or something re- really embarrassingly nice. old. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah I've, I've got a PhD now and there's still stuff my mom says where I'm like, no, maybe she's, yeah, <laughs> she's got a point. I saw a, um, a headline. No, I saw a quote recently um, about headlines that said, it was a general thing, not just about kind of science, but said that uh, if a headline is a question, the answer is invariably no. No. Um, <laughs> yes. Certainly seems to ring true, and I'd, I'd, I'd guess in science as well that would be particularly true. Mm, you can't definitely. simplify anything that much. Have we discovered aliens? No, because no. <laughs> the headline would be. But you're way more aliens. likely. <laughs> it would be way more likely to click on an article that says, "Have we discovered uh, aliens?" Then we haven't discovered aliens. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so you can see why that's the case. There's a, there's another uh, thing that was pointed out to me recently, and I can't for the life of me remember where I got it from. But someone pointed out the phrase that's used often in news articles, which is "concerns have been raised," and it's once once you know once you look out for it, you'll see it all the time. And it's a very interesting device that you can use as a journalist because it allows you to discuss something without necessarily having any evidence that that is a controversial thing you can elevate something to a controversial topic just by saying concerns have been raised you don't need to like cite a source on that and it just means that anyone reading it who is ready to feel a particular way about a a subject you can get them to think that you're agreeing with them even if there's no evidence of that thing Mm -hmm. Um, i've gone way off topic now i'm sorry (laughs) i think it's it's yeah you do see those stuff like unattributed sources or sources say, and it's like, well, who? If it's mm. someone yeah. with uh, Heinz kind of, ketchup, what yeah. kind of sauce? If it's someone with like authority, then you would name that person, I guess. Yes, yeah. Um, exactly. So if you're not, then there must be a reason for that. Um, if you've not told us who, it's because it is Mr. and Mrs. Nobody um, of absolute no standing. <laughs> <laughs> I know you. Um, you gave the example before of the the eggs and the kind of eggs influenced research. Uh, do you guys have any more kind of specific examples that you've come across uh, in your work kind of recently of um, stories being kind of exaggerated or distorted? Oh, how long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um. so we, we talk uh, about a few different articles on each episode of our podcast. So we get we get through quite a lot, and generally speaking, all the 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 kind of minor things that we'd do slightly differently uh, are are minor, and they don't change the overall 
aim of the the article. Uh, so we recently did, as Katie was mentioning, uh, an article on kind of dementia and Alzheimer's, and it's it's often a confusing a particular term that a scientist would use for a more uh, general term, and you kind of exaggerate that way, um, or making a link a leap um, based on, say, there's a, a a piece of research out there about memory and improving your memory, and then making the jump to this could be a, a cure for Alzheimer's when none of the mm. research is to do with neurodegenerative diseases. It's to do with how memory works, but that there, there is that intuitive link, but that shouldn't be the headline. So um, one of our things that we've come across recently is seeing a particular word in a headline that is then not mentioned again for the entire article. Um, mm. And, as soon as you're aware that that can happen, you start seeing it everywhere. Um, so I would encourage the the listener to do that because it's quite entertaining. <laughs> um, and I think one major area outside of biology that that crops up a lot is for some reason, uh, well, not not for some reason, for for very good reasons. Uh, <laughs> when space is mentioned in the news, it's always very exciting. People love stories about space and things. And I I have this thing where. Because of the way it's reported, I reckon if you asked people generally, you know, uh, have we found life on Mars? I think a lot of people would pause for a bit and have to really think about it. Because I haven't even kept up with where we are with regards to finding water on Mars. Because I, th I feel like every six months, an article would be published saying, oh, we found clear signs of life on Mars. And it's... No, we found frozen water crystals in certain bits of Mars and things like this. So that's one that always gets the the potential for alien life is one that always gets exaggerated and, and yes. brought to the forefront when it's possibly not. And that, that's something that annoys me because, like like we said, I'm a biologist by training, but I'm a, an overall science enthusiast because you know, I'm asthmatic and wear glasses, so I'm not allowed to be anything else. Yeah, you, um, you, society had already decided. <laughs> yeah, there, uh, there was no personal choice in this. Um, but I, I'm really interested in space. And uh, I think it was like two years ago, there was something crazy that went on um, with space uh, to do with a certain type of, I think it was like an image of the best image taken of somewhere, something Cool, like cool, Is cool, that the cool black, stuff. The black hole one? Maybe yeah. the black hole, yeah. And I was reading it like, this is amazing. This sounds great. Um, but the article that I was reading just scored very low on the sort of have you heard scale. And it was just making me more and more angry because I couldn't find the information that I wanted to find about mm. like how they did this. Um, and I, I don't have that time to go and look into a field that I know nothing about to try and find that key information to see like how much I trust this image or whatever. And it just put my back right up. And every time anyone talked about it, I was like, if you can't provide me with better <laughs> detail, I'm not talking to you about it. And um, but it just made me realize that Luke and I are in a very um, privileged position in that our understanding is biology and a lot of the science headlines tend to be a biological because there's that human link mm -hmm. um and we have that um that standing that allows us to sort of look um at it from within our own field to a degree um and know where to look a bit better when you're coming from outside of that bubble and trying to navigate something that you don't know about but you are interested in it can just be so frustrating to try and find information that just should should be there. Um, so we're big advocates for just, you know, if the article itself can't tell us everything, mm -hmm. please signpost to the original article or somewhere where you can find, um, out, more. Where you can find out more. Sure. Um, I saw an article this morning, which is similar to this. It was about the, the headline or the story was that if you have calorie labels on the left-hand side of packaging, you are less likely to buy the product. And if it's on the right, you are more likely to, right? So the, mm. the reasoning was that left-hand side, you see that first, you read left to right, you see it first, higher calories, you're put off. Whereas if it's on the right-hand side, you see the nice picture of the food, and then you see the calories and you're not put off, right? 
So it seems plausible. The headline didn't mention this. Went in to look at the paper. It was a difference of one person. So oh, four people <laughs> were more likely, four people would buy it uh, if it was on the right-hand side and three people would buy it if it's on the left-hand side. Uh, Not mentioned in the article. The article just said, put it on the left-hand side. Uh, and so I think like we have this thing where if we can kind of make sense intuitively of the, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. It's on the left-hand side. Yeah, you. and there's a reason behind that. I guess what I'm getting at is like, how do we... Um, how do we think about sample size or study size or the effect of is, is an event significant or not? Is that something we should be looking at more closely? Completely. And I got really excited by that, that example that you yeah. said there because you can see it logistically. And I was thinking, oh, I know exactly the control that you would use. You would go to an Arabic country or somewhere where they speak Hebrew, where they read right to left and then see if it if it matches, and then I'm just very, very disappointed that it was just one person. Sure. Um, but yeah, you're completely right. You need to be aware of, it comes again to what is this done in um, a sort of sub-level of that, of, is like how reliable is that data? So how many times has it been repeated? If it's a, um, a sort of qualitative study, so something that's like yes or no, um, how many people is that done in? Is that statistically significant? Which is a key word in science is significance, and that that is that's a word that holds weight um, compared to the layman's use of significance, um, which is a sometimes something that gets missed um, as science gets sort of transcribed into the the layman's terms. Yeah, I, I think that's a really obvious example. I think if you looked at that and was like, oh, they did it on. You know, seven people. You would you would viscerally just be like, I I know seven weird people who would who would do all sorts of things, and you wouldn't be able to draw a conclusion about everyone from those seven people. And I think in that particular case, you would be suspicious because it's really easy to get lots of people to get lots of numbers on that. There must be loads of people buying products and the left and right thing to be able to test it. So why have you only got so few? Um, but as Katie say, says, the firstly, linking to the article is very useful because in that situation, the, 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 the basics would be to do some kind of significance testing and the article should, should have already done that. So I have to imagine maybe it's based on something that isn't all that scientifically rigorous. Sure. Uh, I'd be curious if they actually linked to the article itself. Um, but yes, you wouldn't be expected to do the maths yourself you shouldn't work out if things are no. significant the the you scientific article do should should do the numbers for you um yes and uh depending on what the article is if we looked into it it very well could be that the article itself says oh you know there was more on this side but it's actually it's likely to just be random yeah noise um there's um an interesting point about uh, statistical analysis and sample size as well. You need to make sure that you're um, that you're truthful about what your sample was. So, say if you're doing a population-wide study, you need to uh, report on what demographics you stu you studied in terms of age and ethnicity and socioeconomic background, and that's um, to ensure that the correct um, conclusions are made. Because statistically, it's something like uh, one in seven people um, are Chinese. Um, but if I looked out my window now and counted seven people, it is unlikely that one of those people will be Chinese because of the socioeconomic um, demographic of where I live, which is in Manchester, which is in England. Um, so you need to be aware, not just of sample size, but of what kind of um, demographic is studied on. And something that's really important with that, that's key in the last like sort of five years with AI and um, machine learning um, is that if your sample type, which you train on, is incorrect, you will get incorrect data back out. And then that's a whole issue for, for example, um, when driverless cars were being tested, um, I think once there was just originally, it was mostly just white people that they recognized. 
and so they the oh, cars so weren't wealth, very good. wealthy Californians yes, in, uh, weren't so good at recognizing any sort of racial diversity um which is a problem in itself and then you add to the fact that the car will therefore hit anyone that doesn't fit it's into the sort of white to. male background which is very problematic and the same with um amazon tried to apply a um an ai to do their hiring and they took out all um genders and names for example and um told um the ai to you know hire me the best candidate and it was trained on the original that the people who are already working for uh whoever it was that i said was it Amazon? Amazon, Amazon, yeah. yeah whoever um so it said like this is everyone that we employ um we want uh, to hire some new people and because the people that they employed were mostly male the what they did is they created an ai that was um biased against women and then even when they took out any uh so you know like gender so for example a feminine name like katie versus mark um it would still pick up if you um played like in a female hockey group or a, a typical gender things and just bin your application um so it's not just important for when you're reading an article to understand what it was done in in terms of what the population it was done in it's also important for the scientists um because for example if an art if that original article that came out to do with um identifying people for driverless cars sounds great um and then if they had uh, appropriately said this was our sample you would go okay i'm envisioning some problems that are gonna happen later down the line mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's all to do with this transparency. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. I, I wouldn't, unless the numbers are extreme, you probably don't need to worry about it. The the article should deal with the numbers and what's significant. But yes, if they make it clear how they've selected the people, that will give you a lot more information. Um, and if they don't, if they skip very quickly over how they got their samples, that is a reason to be a little bit skeptical. Mm. and maybe look a little bit deeper if it's something that interests you and i guess like sometimes they're observing outcomes right so there might be population health stuff where they look at data 20 years after to see if there's a a link is there a way we can kind of quickly identify like if something's causal or something's just kind of maybe almost like a coincidence of relationship given that's accurately shown in articles so that that's something that will be well discussed in the actual article because that is the nature of these kind of um, population studies and sometimes that doesn't get uh, translated across very well into the actual um, sort of public eye but I think Luke's correct in that if they talk about the conditions of the study that's that shows that they've got nothing to hide Whereas if they gloss over it, um, it's indicative that there may be a, some sort of issue. So when you look at, for example, um, death rates associated with this group A that were smokers and group B that weren't smokers, um, but they look at all deaths and not just um, smoke-related deaths or health-related deaths, then you've, your data is going to be skewed by people that were hit by buses and um, fell out of a window. Um, <laughs> and that a lot of the time you will see in good written papers, there will be a section that says, just like quick disclaimer, this was this, this was this, this yeah. was included. And I, so, yeah, first first on our list of things when you're, when you're looking through an article is what did they do? Or how, how did they find out the thing they found out? Um, and like you say, so there's there's these things called kind of observational studies. So the idea is if you would hope that a, a news uh, a news article would tell you a bit about what they did to find out whatever the headline is. And an observational study is anything that starts with, you know, uh, scientists looked over 20 years of data and noticed, you know, uh, that these two things tended to go hand in hand. And 
they are very valuable studies because that is that is a reason to to go oh is there a link there but that's the and point then is, more it's, research is yes done. it's it's a start for further research into that thing not you don't draw a causal conclusion at that point um and i think one of my favorite examples of this for kind of causality is uh, Say the ice cream. Can, yeah <laughs> <laughs> you can you can really easily uh demonstrate that ice creams cause drowning um, that the the number of ice cream sold on a particular day heavily correlates with the number of people that die by drowning. Like it's a beautiful yeah, correlation. Yeah. Like it's like wow. straight there. <clears throat> and and yeah, so it's it's based on observational data that you notice over a long period of time that this happens. And the 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 kind of common sense interpretation of that is that it's just to do with hot weather. When it's hot, more people swim and more people buy ice creams. So there, mm -hmm. there's no causal link between those two things. Um, so that would, for example, cause a scientist to go, oh, how can we look into this? Well, if we just randomly choose 10 parks in the UK and stop ice cream vans from going to those parks, is there a noticeable decrease in, in, you know, in uh, drownings and things like that? That's when you start to then be able to identify that taking a particular action seems to have a particular effect, and that's mm -hmm. more causal. Um, but yes, it's it's quite common for that kind of subtlety to get lost, particularly mm -hmm. in the headline. But I, you'd hope that the the article itself, if you read a couple of paragraphs in, would would tell you what they were doing. And a, a good communication on something that's an observational study will tend to end with this is what they are going to do in the future. Yeah. Um, but it's also worth noting that these kind of observational studies, though they frequently happen at the sort of start of that scientific pipeline as identifying something to look at, sometimes they happen at the end as well. Um, so if uh, a link between X and Y has been shown experimentally um, in a small, uh, in you know, petri dish level, um, people can we'll start to look at the sort of population level data to see if there is something that will link the two. And that gives you more encouragement to pursue that long pipeline. Is there any like kind of take home advice that you would want to leave the, the listener with, like when they're reading an article, you know, some top tips? So when you're typically encountering news, so it'll be scrolling through Facebook, someone's shared a, an article, um, you'll see Headline first. I think the most important thing is if it's something that you're going to take on board, if it's something you're going to pay attention to. Or if you're going to talk about your friend, about it with your friends. If you're going to say, did you see that blah, blah is blah, blah. If you want to be a good friend, you'll have clicked on that article. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, yeah, don't share it without knowing what it's about. Um, but yeah, if, you, if you're going to take on that, that article, just give it a click, read a couple of paragraphs, because often a lot of kind of very uh, exaggerated articles that haven't, you know, don't have the same kind of journalistic rigor as maybe a newspaper article or something like that will fall apart in the first couple of paragraphs. You'll realize that, you know, they're talking about one thing and then it quickly goes off into something else. I think it's important to to think about how you react to it emotionally. Is it trying to invoke uh, invoke a particular reaction from you. And then when you get into the article, we typically go for kind of three major things, which is how, so how was it done? You know, uh, main ones are things like, uh, was it in an animal? Was it in people? How many, you know, was it over a long period of time in the past, just kind of noticing a pattern or did someone think I have a, a hypothesis, I'm going to test it. Uh, the next thing to consider is who. So who did the research? You know, what? where are they from? What's their background? Are they someone who that sounds... Who it? Yeah. Uh, are who they qualified? Who's, who's told them to do it? Um, things like that. Uh, and then the, the final one, which I think is, is probably one that's often overlooked and is, I think, quite an important one is who else. So who else agrees? Is there someone that the, the article is talking about that's completely separate from the, the group that did the research, but is knowledgeable in that field who can say, you know, you know what, this they did this in a very sensible way. I'm confident their results 
sound about right with what we know in the field, or, you know, this was a surprise, but their results look rigorous and they've taken into account the things that I would want them to, things like that. That's a really good uh, sign of a good article. So I think they're the major things. That's all we have time for today. A huge thank you to both Katie and Luke for their insight. You can check out the Have You Heard team on Twitter at Have You Heard UK. Whilst you're there, why not check us out too? You can find us there at UOM Eng. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. The next time you see a science news piece, we hope you feel a little bit more informed and have the skills you need to decipher whether or not you can trust the piece. Join us next time in the season two finale of The Buzz. Thank you.